Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 78th episode of the Truth Island podcast. The first television was invented in the year 1927 by a 21-year-old by the name of Filio Taylor Farnsworth. Some of the first images transmitted by Farnsworth's invention were a simple line and the dollar bill sign. As anxious investors started growing impatient, if Farnsworth invention would ever make any money. TV, however, would not come to dominate people's households until, the, until after the Second World War, as the cost was far too prohibitive for people to afford it during the Depression. Most people before TV would get their news by reading the newspaper, listening to radio, or visiting the local theater. However, since its inception, there have been a number of public intellectuals and scientists that have been quick to point out television's dangers. Aldous Huxley, writing in 1932 in his book, Brave New World, which describes a dystopia where every house has a TV at the foot of their bed, writes, television was left on a running tap from morning till night. A similar dystopia is also depicted in George Orwell's 1984, where every home is also outfitted with a large rectangular screen known as telescreens, which strangely enough more resemble HDTVs of today than of the cubic TVs of Orwell's time. The only difference being that in Orwell's novel, the TV is also a surveillance system which allows the government to look back at the people watching. Outside the realm of science fiction, there have been multiple scientific studies that have documented the developmental impact of children that have been reared watching TV. A 2013 scientific paper published by the neuroscientist Hikuru Takushi confirmed other scholarly inquiries about TV's effects on children's development by documenting negative effects on children's prefrontal cortex and frontal polar areas and a significant decrease in children's verbal IQ. The scientists also conclude, quote, TV viewing is known to affect psychological properties. It is known that the duration of TV viewing or the viewing of violent TV predicts an increase in aggression longitudinally. Moreover, TV has been suggested to aggravate depressive mood. The article mentioned above is just one of many that have been published. Some articles such as one published by the British Journal of Sports Medicine conclude that six hours or more of daily television watching can cut the average human's lifespan down by five years. When we think of technology, we are often fed the conventional wisdom that the danger or harm will soon pass. But what if it doesn't? Or what if that danger has been with us all along, but we simply have not been aware of it? I am once again joined by Christopher, who has come onto the show to share his experience living without TV and what a life after TV looks like. Christopher, take us back to 2014. What made you toss that boob tube out of your home? Well, you know, it was one of those things where my original motivation was... I guess just pragmatic, like a lifestyle change, but ended up leading me down this rabbit hole. But I remembered one day I was I, it, like, it was either video editing or graphic design on the computer. And I had the TV on in the background. I used to watch uh, when Law and Order would have the SVU marathon on Tuesdays all day. <laughs> so it was just one of those weird kismet moments. I was listening to, I think it was Stabler talking to either Munch and or Benson. And then suddenly it hit me like a sack of oranges. I was like, I talk like these people. Mm -hmm. No, no, I'm serious. I, I said, 
in day-to-day conversation, I would mimic the speech pattern, the phrases they would use. And I actually started to get chills. I got up just very slowly, deliberately, turned off the TV, and I sat down in a chair in the living room. I sat there for about 25 minutes and just thought. And I thought to myself, instances in my life where I may have fumbled the ball socially or romantically or even job interviews. And I thought to myself, I must have sounded so disingenuous at times because, and now it wasn't just dialogue from SVU. I, for years, would almost recite verbatim uh, homicide, life on the street. I remembered somebody got in trouble at work, this place I worked one time. And it was one of those situations where definitely on promotion, I mean, on probation, maybe even about to be fired. And I was like, oh, you didn't hear what happened to so-and-so. We wound up in the jackpot. Now that's, they used to use that phrase on, on homicide when they had a suspect in the interrogation room or one of the detectives was in trouble with internal affairs. So here I am using a very virtually unknown piece of slang, which is like very specific to the Baltimore region. And looking back, it's like, I realize now, I now I understand why people would look at me like a crackhead because I'm talking like jibber jabber, but in my mind, I'm having a conversation, just not an organic one because every word out of my mouth was a line from some TV show. Yes. Now you've, Christopher, I think you've touched upon something really important here, something I never even um, thought of, is that maybe maybe not everyone out there is mimicking the exact speech patterns of what they watch on TV, but they might be fantasizing and they might be playing out certain fantasies of what they see on there, you know? And and I think we talked about this on a previous podcast with like most people on TV are very rich and powerful and, and we're, we're constantly. So I think a lot of us, whether we're consciously or unconsciously aware of this, we are sometimes just living through that fantasy or, or living through that make-believe and we're extracting lessons from that make-believe into our reality, right? And I think, I think it happens because yeah. To some degree, we tend to admire the people we see on TV. They tend to be really, they tend to be really brave. They tend to speak their mind. They tend to be handsome. They tend to be, you know, they, they tend to have all of these great qualities that we all want. And we tend to emulate those great qualities because we're like, hey, I, I want to be like that person, right? And what that comes at is it actually comes at the expense of developing our authentic self. Precisely that. And I noticed in my case, and I noticed this fairly recently, like we've talked a few times, so I'm sure you've noticed sometimes in my, my organic speech, pattern, I kind of trail off or maybe trip over my own tongue. Part of the reason, and I've actually processed this in therapy, is since 2014, in many respects, I'm learning to talk again. But as my authentic self and not just recycling some blurb or quip or quote of dialogue 
just to get through some social interaction. And that has been very profound to me, learning to basically express myself like a self-actualized adult rather than, because I mean, I was a TV addict going back to when Carter was commander in chief. <laughs> I, I mean, oh goodness. I mean, people used to joke with me that if they ever had a game show where it was like really ultra obscure trivia, I'd probably never have to work a day in my life. So, you know, in the lead up though to 2014, Around the time I turned 40, 41, I thought to myself, well, I want this to be my act too, my renaissance. I've had a couch growing out of my ass the first half of my life. (laughs) So that was the initial motivation. But then as I got further and further away from TV, I began to make all of these discoveries. And yes, some of them were, I definitely wouldn't, I don't want to say painful, but definitely profound, very protracted, like, wow, you know, like, like I said, you know, so many times I fumbled the ball in various interactions. It's like, and so, you know, I try not to be too hard on myself because obviously, you know, we, we live, you know, we're all a work in progress. Now this, you've actually just made me, like, I've actually just been thinking about what you said about the voice, the voice of people on TV. And I've got all of these figures in my head right now, right? You, we've got, you know, we've got Archie Bunker in there. We've we've got all, all of the all of these voices, um, and they all sound they they speak their mind. They're very brazen. They're very masculine, and and you know they're powerful voices, right? What I do notice about all of these voices on TV is that there are seldom any intellectuals that actually appear in TV shows. Like you, if you actually pay attention to the vocabulary and the complexity of ideas on, on television, it tends to be at a very low level. Like these, these people do not talk well, with like, they're not quoting Shakespeare and all this other stuff. So I'm wondering like, we have these, we have these voices that we want to mimic and parrot, but none of these voices actually produce anything that's really profound. So it's like, we're, we're not only emulating things that we see on TV, we're also emulating like a very dumb version of ourselves. I I think there's a lot to be said for that because, see, it's funny for as much as I love to watch, you know, Al Bundy make a fool of himself and, you know, Ralph Cramden blow his top and Kramer fall down. (laughs) I did. This was one thing that I think kind of helped save my ass was when I was little, I loved when Dan Aykroyd would do the the news with Jane Curtin on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And then years later when it was Dennis Miller. And there was something, and even when Johnny Carson did the primetime specials, I remember a lot of my friends were like, oh, that's old people stuff and everything. But there was something appealing about that. And I think, but I noticed though, by and large though, like you said, those things weren't as widely popular and accepted. Like the intellectuals were always, you know, the wimp or, you know, picked on or even their sexuality was called into question at times. From what I've, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little too young to really remember Johnny Carson, 
but I've actually been hearing for some older people that he he was a lot more nuanced, a lot more wittier, and and just came off a, a, a lot more poised and intelligent than any of like the talk show hosts that we have today. You know, I think a lot of the talk show hosts today use a lot of profanity, and they're very they're not very subtle in the way that they make these jokes, and they're not very clever about it. They're very overt and very direct and very to the point. And even even if Johnny Carson wasn't you know giving off a PhD thesis in, in his thoughts, he at least was teaching you how to like present yourself in a more intelligent way. And, and again, I'm not, I don't know that much about Johnny Carson, but that's one criticism I've heard. Well, there is that, but another, for me, the takeaway with Johnny Carson was he never liked to have political figures on his show. And the reason was, was he wanted his audience to make up their own mind and I thought to myself, that's cool. And I, no, no, I do. And I think that's something that's fallen by the wayside, not just in the late night talk show arena, but in general, as far as television goes, I don't, I don't want to sound conspiratorial and say there's an agenda being pushed, but it just seems the writing teams can't leave their personality out of it and just tell a story anymore. Well, I talked about this issue uh, on a previous podcast with Joe, and there used to be something I think called the, the Fairness Act or the Fairness Doctrine, which meant that there had to be like equal time for opposing viewpoints, uh, at least in the p- political realm. And for the most part, network television was beholden to that. And most network television, their solution to that problem was, well, if we just don't talk about politics at all, we never really have to worry about the fairness doctrine at all, right? Because if you start talking about politics, then you have to constantly be crunching the numbers, be like, oh, okay, we had five minutes towards that conservative idea. We need another five minutes. So their solution was like, well, let's just make our lives really easier and just not talk about it at all. And then we'll let the, the, the viewer make up their own mind. That kind of went out the window. I think it was repealed under Reagan. It just disappeared. And then cable TV came out, and cable can do whatever the hell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They They have no fairness doctrine. They have no rules whatsoever. And that kind of opened up the floodgates to television. Maybe, maybe in the past, again, I'm not old enough to really know this. Maybe in the past, TV was influencing us on a more subtle level on what to think. But then after the 80s, it becomes way more overt, way more direct, and way more in your face. And I, I think that's the shift that you're talking about. Yeah, it um yeah, it there was there has been a profound shift. Like one thing, and I'm very grateful to be born on this kind of weird cusp where I'm old enough to remember when there were only three big networks and they all went off the air at 2 a.m. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they did. ABC, NBC, and CBS, and even the PBS affiliates here in New York all went off the air from 2 till about 5.36 every night. And what I thought was cool about that, and now I didn't study sociology in college, but this, so just take this with a grain of salt, but what I thought was cool about that was that that did kind of set a precedent. Mm-hmm. It gave us all something to agree on, like, okay, we're going to knock the craziness off for three and a half, four hours. We're going to simmer down, take it easy, and the world will be just where we left it in the morning. And there was a kind of rhythm 
a universal rhythm to that that everyone could get behind. And I think now with this whole 247 thing, I think we're not wired for that because it's like we go from the TV to the smartphone to the social media to the games to da 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 and you know we're constantly going up here in the gray matter and the TV is like not taking itself that seriously it's like okay there's important things that we need to tell you however it's time for you to go to bed right like that's what the TV is doing by shutting down from like 2 a.m to 5 you know it's like life like there's important things going on in the world but not so important that you need to stay up all night and worry about them like there is like this is entertainment this is media and you know again like I said TV has done a great job of covering things like the Vietnam War and then exposing like graphic images and and like showing us what was gone and it's had a useful utility in in that respect but i like the fact that even even in any context the tv is like you've had enough of us it's time for you to go to bed it it is it's important but it it can we can take a break from this right now yeah i think that losing that was very unhealthy to us collectively now i'm not proposing we shut the internet down every night at 2 (laughs) a.m but I, I'm just, it is something to consider that we did take that time to kind of unwind, process everything, take a breather, and then go on. Because when I ditched the TV in 2014, I I didn't even have a, a smartphone yet at the time. I, I didn't get my first iPhone until 2016. But at the time, I thought, all right, the TV, if something crazy happens... There's the Drudge Report. There's the news ticker on MSN. There's somehow I'll find out. Or barring that, somebody will call me and say, oh, geez, did you just hear what happened? You, you know, turn on the TV. And, and, I, and I, I did listen to the radio a lot at the time, too. So that was part of it, like consciously and deliberately reminding myself that I'm cutting myself off from a source Yes. Of information, but not, you know, everything. Now, now I want you to walk me through your mind in 2014. Let's go back there. You're, you're realizing that you're starting to sound like the characters on TV. And I've, you know, I, I've just, just, you know, some people know this about me. I've stopped watching TV for almost uh, three, four months now, oh, but oh. I, don't, I don't have the bravery yet. I don't have the stamp, the bravery yet to actually pick the darn thing up and, and toss it into the trash can. Um, you know, well, like, that, that takes, that takes some doing. Tell because... me, tell me what it is. Like you, you're aware you're sounding like this. Did you stop watching TV for a few months before throwing it away? Or did you just throw it away in that instant? Tell me exactly how you got that courage to just pick that sucker up and toss it away. I, well, I mean, full disclosure, I mean, it wasn't a completely clean break, cold turkey. Like, for example, I did, the first thing I did knock off was the um, the all-day marathons and stuff that went out the window. I did anything that was entertainment during the day that, that for me was, okay, that's it, we're finished. I did still watch, like, Eyewitness News. I think they had the first at four, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. That I figured, all right, that's information that I'll, you know, I'll still allow for that. I did phase that out uh, within two or three years. My guilty pleasure 
was still um, all the, the the zombie stuff on AMC, <laughs> uh, like uh, well, be afraid of the zombies or whatever it is, um, and um, yeah, the Walking Dead. Now here's the thing with that: after the Negan story arc ended, I did tune out of the whole franchise altogether, just because I thought the writing went into the toilet. So. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that's a whole other, but um, so, yes, I mean, it was a step down. Like, for example, I was a total cartoon network junkie, <laughs> especially like the late night block, like with the old Transformers and G.I. Joe and uh, uh, Adult Swim, the, the Robot Chicken. Yeah, there's some funny stuff. That, oh, yeah, no, there was, there was some great. And you know what it was? The writing. They did put a lot of effort into it, particularly the, the robot chicken. But I thought to myself, all right, in the abstract, in the overall, I get the gist of it. It's dolls and toys doing adult things. So in that regard, and the same thing, I mean, I used to love Family Guy. But, you know, it was really funny. I read... I forgot if it was Twitter or Reddit, but somebody made a really sarcastic joke about uh, Seth MacFarlane. They said, okay, we get it. You watched a lot of TV in the 80s. <laughs> and you know, but I I thought about this early on and I thought, you know, in that context, it really is a one-trick pony. And so knowing that, I was able to give up Family Guy after that. Yeah, and then for me, for me, The Simpsons organically just stopped being funny years yes. previous, and I know I'll probably get a lot of hate for that. I know there's a lot. You know, of, it's funny. Every every almost every like every pod every philosopher podcaster is familiar with The Simpsons. I've had on this show, like absolutely almost like it's it keeps coming up in conversation. Well, we're all because it is like the early Simpsons. I, and I, you know, we're getting a little bit on a tangent, but the early Simpsons talked about the Bible. It talked about some really deep, deep moral issues. Like the, and the, the reason why people don't realize this is that the early Simpsons writers were all Harvard and Yale graduates. All of them went to elite colleges. They, they graduated from the best universities right. and they really had, you know, a great education behind them. So those really early Simpsons episodes actually allude to some very deep stuff. And then eventually, oh, you know, yeah. after the first seven or eight seasons, all the smart folk kind of just migrated to doing other stuff. And, and then I guess maybe writers of, of less intellectual acumen started coming in and, and then things got more formulaic mm -hmm. and they stopped. They didn't have like they, they weren't referencing the Bible anymore. They weren't referencing obscure books, uh, you know, of literature and so forth. And, and so th that that is also see, I also like to paint television into two distinct eras um, because like maybe I think this was. Um, a year or so ago, I was showing my girlfriend an old episode of Twilight Zone. You ever see the one where the guy oh. thinks he's like, the, like he's like the devil, and he's trapped in a room, and and the guy opens the door, and the devil escapes. Oh, the, the Howling Man. Yeah. yeah, the Howling Man. Right, right. I showed that episode to my girlfriend. Yeah. And this yeah. is this is what she said. She said, "My God, how 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 did how did people know how to write so well back then?" And and I when she said that statement, I just actually just froze, froze in my seat, Christopher. And I was like, let me try and think about why that is. And then it clicked. 
it actually watching that old Twilight Zone episode actually clicked is that those early writers they themselves actually still read books, okay? So if you were a television writer back in the day, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even up until the 90s, you still were a literate person that read books. And thus you could create television shows that referenced books and represents, represent, you know, um, that still alluded to like higher forms of art or, or literature. But now all of the writers that we have today have grown up on television. They've been raised on it and they're not reading books themselves. So the only thing that they can reference are other TV shows. Right. And that that's that's interesting because I do see that spill over into like my day-to-day life. Like I've seen people where I'll begin discussing something like really arcane or esoteric and they'll be just kind of like, huh? And now I, I promise you, there's no judgment attached to that. That's just what I've observed. And I, I mean, personally, I, I like when this happens nowadays. I was a little self-conscious at first. I remember, ironically, it was a, a rerun of Seinfeld when they were talking about reading books a second time. And when Jerry says to George, he's like, well, you know, when you read Moby Dick a second time, Ahab and the whale actually become really good friends. But you know what it was? I thought about that and I was like, yeah, that's true. So now if I watch The Honeymooners again for the 90th time, is Ralph going to finally get the promotion? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's the thing. Like even in that Seinfeld episode, they're actually able to reference Moby Dick. I don't even think well, that the writers yeah. today are capable of even referencing Moby Dick at even a, a, a surface level. And that's just a high level. There's just a high level of danger that I'm seeing now, because now, now as younger writers are coming of age, they're le- they're way less versed in books and and in other literary forms, and they're they're influencing it. Okay, so you've given it up, and tell me a little bit about your overall health. Like you got rid of the well, TV, and now what have you been supplementing your time doing? And and tell me about your moods and other things like that. Well, yeah, the mood within months began to shift by leaps and bounds by light years even because the inherent background noise in my head so to speak began to change because i wasn't comparing myself and my life to advertising uh this mythologized and even distorted idea of what it is to be male or to be an American or to be this or to be that. And I eventually began to figure out who I am, who Chris is, and to become comfortable with who I am. You know, like I wasn't comparing my life to fables anymore, which is essentially what I was doing. So as time went on, I began to get more comfortable in my own skin and then i began to look more at education like i had already taken through coursera a couple of college courses in the spring and summer of uh, 2013 but then now with all this extra free time it's funny you mentioned yale because i noticed at that time yale had had financial markets And so I thought to myself, well, if uh, I can go to Yale for $47, you know, 
had I not given up the boob tube, I probably wouldn't have become aware of that opportunity or I may have even brushed it off. So I took that class. I took a semester of Chinese for beginners. Uh, in 2016, I took music history with a uh, university of Florida. So in that respect, and, and I even started uh, the, in early 2015, I started studying Cyrillic alphabet for a few months, just, you know, like I had all this free time now. So that was one thing it, I began to use my gray matter in more constructive. And I know to some people that might sound a little bit cliche, but to have that experience and to actually sit there like, wow, I'm actually listening to Professor Robert Schiller talk about, you know, uh, you know, financial markets and, you know, the, the button, you know, the Bretton Woods agreement and everything. It's like, wow, this is actually really cool. <laughs> You know, so it was, um, there really was an emotionally fulfilling aspect to all of it too. Now, I, I like what you're saying because this is a very common sense thing, but people don't realize how profound it is. When you stop watching television, your time frees up. And nobody, like, like one thing I've noticed is that we're a lot more intelligent than we give ourselves credit for and here oh and, absolutely and if here, we would allow that to blossom yeah and here's how exactly because let's say you give up television well are you really going to stare at the walls and watch them <laughs> crack and dry you know like 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 the average human being needs a lot of stimulus and once you remove the television stimulus you know you would have to be a real dullard to just sit in a chair and stare at the ceiling so you're right. going to try and find other ways to keep yourself occupied and chances are on the by and by those ways just by happenstance are going to be a bit more intellectually rigorous than watching television it's just it's just that's what it is and that's our default setting our, our default setting is actually to be intellectually rigorous but we kind of need something we need a block in time for that to actually be fulfilled. You know, you know, the intellectual pursuits, like I, you know, I did the Coursera and the following year too, I even, I had an old yoga DVD from, uh, you know, a former girlfriend. And I thought, well, why not give this a whirl? And then, you know, what was great about this, the teach, the instructor on the DVD, uh, Barbara Benah, Oh, her voice is amazing. You know, I, I was talking about speech patterns and vocal patterns. That's the type of thing, like, I would listen, I would pay to hear her read the graffiti off a truck stop restroom wall because her voice is, and her manner of speaking is so captivating and it's so serene. So that was something that was very enriching, like discovering, you know, like, I had this DVD I was sitting on for about three or four years. And had I not given up the TV, I probably wouldn't. And as a result of that though, I mean, I, I still do watch in limited doses, like a lot of the video sharing platforms, but obviously I'm very selective about what I take in. Yeah. But, but there are a lot of Barbara Benar videos where she's lecturing or whatever. So again, that was another avenue that opened up for me that I probably wouldn't, have deliberately exposed myself to 
yeah, this this is interesting what you're saying because like when we we think of the DVD, I know I know some listeners are thinking, oh wait, he's cheating, he's putting a DVD. But here's the thing about that, right? Yeah. But like 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 here's the deal with this because I still listen to podcasts and things like that. But here's the deal: if you're using media, but it's a background or a supplement to something else you're doing, then I would I would say that that's okay. So in the case of you using the DVD. You're not like sitting and passively consuming the TV. You're actively doing the yoga right. poses. So even though you're utilizing the television, right. you're it's associated with an activity. When I listen to a podcast, I'm typically exercising or cleaning my apartment, and it's just it's and you know I try and listen to ones like I listen to Jordan Peterson or, or some great thinker talking about something. So it's always as a background noise that that isn't is teaching me something new it's not it's not that i think i think when we talk about tv and we talk about media there's a difference between just having it in the background and typically something that's of intellectual caliber in the background than passively sitting your behind and and just having your eyes glued to a screen well no i agree with that like sometimes what i'll do when i'm doing my monthly budget i'll punch up uh, mel robbins on vimeo and I'll have her on in the background because she uh, she's a motivational speaker, but she does give a lot of great advice that one can apply to their day-to-day life immediately. So that's something I'll have on in the background. That's one thing. Yeah, like, like you said, if it's something that's informational and general that you have to engage actively and you're not being passively spoon-fed. The idea is like, I think that mm. if there's an application <laughs> to the voice, right? Like if there's an application, like, okay, this person is providing me spiritual upliftment or or they are teaching me how to manage right. my finances. Like if, if there's an application to it, then that that could be justified or that could be permissible. However, if it's consuming for just entertainment purposes, like I just want to laugh and I want right. to, or I want to be, you know, I just want to listen to a, a tale being unraveled. That's not really helping us at all. So like, again, like, I think it's important to like distinguish between media, which is trying to give us a skill or uplift us in some way, or give us life advice, like exercise advice. That's okay. Right. Stuff that's just there, like make me laugh, entertain me, you know, that, that, that kind of gets into the lowest form of, of media that's, that's humanly possible. I want to kind of move on now to like development. Oh, of course. You know, and I alluded to a lot of this in in my intro, and that is um, the the studies I've shown. A lot of these studies, for whatever reason, have not really. They're published. They're published in peer reviewed journals, but they haven't gotten as much attention as one might imagine. And there's probably a thousand reasons why that is. And that is, is that how yeah. damaged they are, you know, in the, in the uh, 2013 article that I alluded to, they have MRI studies and what they've shown is, uh, and this kind of actually uh, correlates with your story that um, there's, you know, children have more depressive moods. They have uh, high, higher levels of aggression when they watch violent TVs. And, you know, for the longest time we said, oh, there's no relationship between violent TV and violence in real life. And it's like, here's some, you know, academic papers that are actually published by neuroscience that actually suggest that that is in fact the case to some, to some degree. And, and, and that kind of blows conventional wisdom out of the water. 
And this other thing that I think is even damaging is the lowering of IQ, especially verbal IQ, because I think verbal IQ is very important in that it is the language in how we describe the world around us. So like people are just, oh, big deal. The kids aren't using fancy words anymore. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not as simplistic as you make it seem. It actually means that they don't have the nuance and the cognitive ability. They're not developing the cognitive language to describe how they're feeling, the world around them, nuances, and really grapple with the world in a much more complicated way. And this has profound impacts because we have a, we're, we're, we're actually breeding a, a human species that cannot describe things in an articulate and complicated manner. I find it, it's one of those things I find simultaneously amusing, but at the same time, it's kind of an uh-oh moment. Like when people are trying to describe like why they didn't follow through on something or why they bailed on a commitment or why they maybe disliked something. It's like, well, you know, reasons. Whereas time was not too far removed from where we're at, people would extrapolate the reasons. Like, well, this didn't resonate with me because, you know, it triggered some PTSD or, you know, I didn't like the flavor of this because it, you know, it was too sour, uh, uh, it was too salt forward. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm. Yeah, people don't like like you said. They can't articulate accurately something, which could bite them in the rear end at some point later on down the line. Yes, yes, and this is exactly what Orwell described. Um, and and he describes this in 1984 very very specifically that people are like, everything is going to be written in shorter and shorter and shorter sentences. And we notice that, that, you know, from our conversation in the beginning of this podcast, people are speaking and writing in much shorter sentences. They're a lot more terse in the way that they describe themselves. And they'll be like, oh, well, I just didn't feel like it. And there's no follow-up. There's no, there's no, like, I didn't feel like it. My, you know, my blah, blah, blah was sick and I needed to, you know, they're just saying very short very terse sentences with no follow-up. And that to me is, a, is an indicator of the verbal IQ decline where the TV is teaching us or conditioning us to, to talk in very short sentences and the capacity for elongated thought and elongated sentences is starting to diminish. And we have this very you know abstract esoteric 2013 paper that I'm alluding to right now Folks, if you're listening to this, just look around. People are not as complicated as they once were. Well, you know what I find is a very good example of this. Nine out of 10 people have a smartphone these days. People will still, so, you know, they have a smartphone, right? So you've got a map on it. If not the default map that came with the phone, you can download something from Apple, the App Store. People will still, sometimes with the map, you know, with the app open, will stop me and ask me, you know, can, how do you get to this, this, and such a place? And I'm like, and, and again, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, try, I, I use kid gloves when I dress. I, I don't want to come off like condescending or anything. But in the back of my mind, I'm only thinking like, how is that such a Herculean feat to, you know, you, you have the app, you had the gray matter to download it. And I mean, it just, it, it astounds me that people, 
will have all these apps and things, but yet still I can't get their head around it for whatever reason. And I do think a lot of it is with the, the, the TV, you know, like minimizing, you know, shrinking the ability to think, to articulate and everything. Yes, yes. And, and and I, you know, some people might be, oh, well, there's, some people might say, well, there's always been dumb people. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. But yeah. what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say here is that the average person is substantially more cognitively handicapped than they once were. And I'm, I'm not that old, Christopher. I'm a young guy. But even, even in my world, I'm noticing that people you know, in the 90s or whatever, when I was growing up, were more articulate and wiser and, and had a much more fuller and, 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 and wiser grasp on the world. And I'm seeing the decline in my short little lifespan, my little pea body life here. I'm seeing that there is a decline. My te- you know, the, te- the teachers that, I, that taught me were far more articulate, m- much more wiser, could, ref- could reference things reaching, d- dating back many years that preceded them. And, and you know, the colleagues that I worked with were not as far reaching. They had a very, a very limited claw. Like they could only reach back maybe a few, a couple years into the past. And most of their references were movies that they watched. And th- this is very dangerous. It's very dangerous that, that we, are, we are going through this. And people have been telling us, oh, the TV is harmless, but look what it's done to us. Oh, no, I agree. In fact, obviously, I want to preface this carefully because obviously this doesn't apply to you and I, because obviously you're a very intelligent individual. And I have met some very intelligent individuals along the way, but by and large, from my observations, the last truly completely organic conversation I've had with somebody outside of something like this was probably about 2007. Oh my God, man. This is- and I, I, Most people, and I've noticed this, as I've pulled away from TV, like how I said, basically my personality was sound bites and blips and blurbs. I'm noticing that when I encounter people, their personality, or at least their surface personality, is an amalgam of every sound bite, Vine, YouTube bit, Seth Meyer quote. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they are, they, they are, the they actually, person. you know, you, you have, t- you, sir, like, I need to get, I need to get there in Brooklyn and give you a medal for this because <laughs> I, I think, I, I, I think, Thank you. I, I think that you've actually explained this is that in a way, when you're not watching TV, all the people you brush elbows with, they're just walking analogs of the TV. So you, 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 even if you're not watching TV, all of them are mimicking things that they watched on Fox news or on CNN or, or whatever it is. And then they are incapable of actually coming up with original thoughts of their own. They cannot conjure up an original thought if, if their life depend on it. Thus, they must reference the source material. And they don't know that they're referencing the TV. They think it's organically harvested within their own mind when in actuality, it's harvested in CNN or in Fox News. And this is the danger, my friend, is that they're all just saying things that they heard elsewhere. Nobody, and I like the word that you just used, organic. No one is actually harvesting organic conversations, thoughts that just naturally transpired within their inner consciousness on a long, you know, on a walk they took on a long Sunday evening. For me, that's why this has been so profound at times. 
Because when I realize like how I genuinely may feel about something or someone, whereas opposed to when I look at the before picture of myself around say 2010, 2011, it's like, you know, I, I see the difference. And sometimes I still do get a little bit of chills, you know, just like seeing how programmed I was, you know, like I know that might sound cliche to some people. In my day-to-day life, I've seen how people's perception has been really skewed and thrown sideways. And so, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm grateful to have this opportunity if um, people, you know, are maybe a kind of an impasse in their life. When you do that, make that leap of faith and give up the, you know, the idiot box, it's, you, you really do start to see things uh, on an entirely different level. I mean, even the outside world, like natural phenomenon becomes just so much more enchanting. Yes. One other thing. So there, let's just say there's somebody who's saying right now, I want to be stupid. Uh, ignorance is bliss, right? I'm sure we have a lot of those people who are like, ignorance is bliss. And, I, I, I was one of them for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And like, like, so let's say we've got an ignorance is bliss person, you know, just out there. Well, the study that I alluded to actually says that it has an increase in depressive mood. So if you are watching a lot of television, you're not getting ignorance is bliss. You're actually feeling depressive. It's actually creating a depression within you. However, you don't have the verbal IQ to articulate what it is that is actually bothering you. So, you know, again, for anyone that's listening and thinks, well, I, it's okay. I, I, I want to be a part. I'll take the blue pill or whatever. I'll be a part of the system. I'll be a, a part. I'll let my IQ points dwindle to nothing and just be a part. I just want to be like everyone else, right? They're probably thinking to themselves, well, if everyone else is going down this road and, and they're happy, I just want to be. No, you will still feel immense levels of depression and um, d- immense levels of sadness. It's just that you won't actually know what exactly it is that's within you that's making you right. feel um, that. So it's not really an option. Like the ignorance is bliss option is, is no longer an option because you'll just be hurting inside and not know what it is. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny. I didn't realize this until I stopped watching TV, but romantically too, television, and and not just television, but the Hollywood myth machine as a whole really paints an incredibly unrealistic and distorted view of romance and everything. And I learned trial by fire in real life. Leonard doesn't always get penny, (laughs) but I had to pull away for a good long time. And you know what it was? I had a therapist too, who helped me process through some of this. And she pointed out and to her credit, she was able to do this in a way that was completely non-injurious and non-victim shaming, but basically it was worth the effect. You know, Chris, like, you know, I've worked with you for a while. You, Chris, the, the real product, you're a good guy. But what you were presenting was an adolescent boy, whereas she needed to be with a self-actualized, full-grown adult. 
And without TV, I was able to process that. See, if I was still watching TV, I'm willing to bet the last five bucks in my wallet that I probably would have won, you know, a hissy fit, went home and sulked because I still would have been stunted. But that, see, that's another thing without the TV, I have been able to process that kind of feedback, that kind of constructive. See, that's, that's one thing I would, if, if I had to drive a point home with a hammer and nail, it would be that. I can take it on the beak like that. Had I still been a TV addict, I probably would have reacted like a teenage boy as opposed to process it like a mature adult male yes. and modify my behavior accordingly. Now, this is interesting because it goes back to the real beginning when you said that you were mimicking the people on television. In television, people are – the characters are very outrageous and outlandish. And like we, we discussed earlier, the intellectual type is not really shown in a bright light, if at all. And I think that what happens is, especially men, when we watch television, we emulate these, you know, kind of heroic pro protagonists that can't process complex pieces of information. So what happens is that your limited schema or your limited understanding of the world makes you react in this very emotionally immature way. But then w w when you're able to process the world in a high resolution, high, you know, high verbal IQ way, you are then able to take in that information, parse it out, dissect it, analyze it, be like, this is what I agree with. This is what I do not agree with. Ask right. follow-up questions, become more inquisitive. But television doesn't teach you to do any of that. Television teaches you to flip over a table and, 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 yeah. and you know, like, you know, be a hero or something. Right. So yeah. this is all a part of, of, of like, again, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy or whatever, but what I am saying is that I, I think you're a walking testimonial as to how pronounced this effect can be when you stop watching television, you're able to actually comp actually process criticism and more complicated thoughts and actually enhance and better your life. Beautiful. Last thing we oh. want to talk about, there are a few cinematic masterpieces out there like Taxi Driver and The Godfather. And oh, yeah. they, are, they are worth checking out. Chris, I'm wondering if you have any guidelines or rules like for those of those like me who are, who are right now too afraid to, to, to do the dastardly deed and actually pick up the TV and throw the, <laughs> the side of the curb. Do we, do we have any rules for like, I, you know, like th this one particular film well, or this one particular documentary is worth watching. What, what kind of lat rules could we have for those of us who just can't get rid of it altogether? Well, what I would definitely avoid is within an hour before bed is no television at all. And I'm piggybacking that on something Mel Robbins actually suggested. What she does is the first 20 minutes she wakes up, no phone, no radio, TV, no media, nothing. Just that first 20 minutes is just, you know, if you want to meditate, maybe stretch or whatever. But then she says an hour before bed, no phone, no this, no that. I mean, what I did, I don't sleep with the phone or the iPad in the room. I know that's slightly off topic, but but I would suggest no TV an hour before bed. Just let your mind start to shut down organically. And I would, let's say in the morning you wake up, um, 
and you're not quite ready to give up the news yet, I would, I would wait an hour before putting the news on because the subconscious is actually very, I mean, it's always susceptible morning, noon, and night regardless, but that first 20 minutes to a half hour after you wake up is when it's most susceptible to suggestion. So if you could hold off that first hour after getting up and that first hour before, you know, that last hour before going to bed, just leave it behind. And as far as after dinner, like I know everybody's bedtime is different. You know, like you said, if there's that documentary or movie, you know, some cinematic masterpiece, yeah, you could carve out an hour, but here's the thing, really stick to it. Like, for example, uh, Dorothea Brand had a book called Wake Up and Live, and she was very encouraging about, you know, if you set yourself an hour, that's it. Once the hour's over, on to the next task or activity or whatever you need to have planned. So if you can challenge yourself, and really, you know, even if it's at the best part, just an hour's up, but getting out of one's own way, if you can make that a skill, that's actually something that'll help you in many ways throughout your, your life, you know, holistically. So I think the, um, the big takeaway here is that if we are, if we do have to watch TV, it has to be very purposeful. And I, I think one of the rules, I haven't turned on my TV in quite a bit, but if I do decide to turn on to turn it on once again, I think I have to actually know what exactly it is that I'm going to watch and then shut the TV off as soon as that program or that documentary or that movie is over and nothing more. I think the most dangerous element of television is roaming is when you're roaming yes, endlessly, yes. the roaming between different channels, the roaming between different YouTube clips, therein lies the danger. If you turn on your TV for two hours and say, this one movie is a must-see film, see that must-see must film, and then shut that baby off, do not roam. Just have a destination. Right. And then you, have to have, you have to have a round-trip ticket. You, you visit your television show and then you fly right. right back home. You don't just roam around. You don't just walk the streets of Rome all by yourself and, and, let, and, let, and travel down every single street corner that presents itself. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank, thank you. This has been a pleasure. This concludes the 78th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.